Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. It is Monday, and that means, as usual, we'll be doing a show based on your comments, your feedback, your suggestions, articles you sent me for my opinion on, etc. Got about nine of them queued up. Should be a good show today. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things, a new deadly fungus that's out there. Yes, there's a fungus among us uh, hitting mostly in the uh, northwestern United States and Canada. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, including it maybe not being as bad as uh, some of the reports have led us to believe. We'll be talking about something in the health care bill. Yep, something in the health care bill that um, I bet you, unless you read the article yourself, you're just going to be like, wow, really? That's in there, too. You'll have to hold on for that. And a bunch of other really cool stuff, soaring diesel fuel and some other goodies. Uh, it should all be a good, fun show today. Uh, fun, I guess, even though we'll talk about some things that are quite serious. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one. <clears throat> well, actually, maybe I should tell you, this is episode 429 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Monday, May 3rd, 2010. First show of the month. And remember, folks... Sunday is Mother's Day. Another thing I need to tell you before we do our basic housekeeping is there may not be a show Thursday or Friday. There will probably be one Thursday and not one Friday. I will be away on a secret mission that I can't tell you about unless you already know. If you don't already know, you don't get to know this time. Maybe you'll find out. I'm not sure. We might see each other, but it is a secret mission. Anyway, going on from there, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. What is a survival seed bank? Is it a whole bunch of seeds that you go out and plant tomorrow? No. Not that you couldn't, but that's not what it's really meant to be. It's meant to be a storehouse of seeds to last you a long term. Just like you might have food that you store on a daily basis and you use on a daily basis, but to extend your storage capability, you might go to somebody like Mountain House uh, or Providing Pantry or Yoders or any of these companies that specialize in long-term storage food and bring that in as an adjunct to the eat what you store, store what you eat. You might save your own seeds, buy non-hybrid seeds, buy even some hybrid seeds, no GMOs, of course. But you might want seed that's going to be available to store for 10 or 20 years. That's what a survival seed bank is. It's all about long-term storage and the ability to plant a full-acre crisis garden out of that storehouse of seed. Next up today, silverandgoldshop.com. That's right, silverandgoldshop.com, formerly Tea Party Silver. Uh, check them out for a great selection of silver and gold. I believe silver and gold belongs in your portfolio. It is in mine. I have a question today from somebody that wants to know what other currency can you buy. Um, you can buy gold and silver if you want to invest in real money. I don't think that there's a safe place to put your money right now because uh, if the dollar crashes, it isn't going to be good for any other paper currency in the world. We need to remember that the dollar is the world standard currency right now and that even if other economies eventually recover, the crash of the dollar is the crash of the global economy. One way to ensure yourself against that and be able to purchase whatever currency in a, whatever society you end up in uh, is to have silver and gold as part of what you're putting away for your own future. Next up, remember to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter uh, and all our 
our other social media outlets, including our forum. You can find links to all of those things at www.thesurvivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. I was running a special over the weekend. I looked today. I set the expiration date for today, not yesterday. So it will. the code I gave you on Friday will work today. The code is TRUTH. It's only for annual memberships. If you didn't listen to Friday's show and you happen to be listening to today's, um, I'm not even going to tell you how much you get off. Go listen to Friday's show or go to sign up and you'll find out it's a pretty big discount. Oh, what the hell I'll tell you. 20 bucks off your first year and then $50 a year. So, MSB, support the show at 20 cents an episode. Right now you can support the show for your first year. I think it comes out to about 11 cents. Anyway, let's, uh, let's go on, uh, with the main topic of today's show. And of course that's going to be your questions and your feedback. So, the first question that I have queued up is, so, um, the question actually is kind of cool. It comes from a guy named Gabriel in Germany, and that's as much of a name as I'll give out. That's what I always do is never give out last names unless I'm told to. Uh, but here's his question, and I'll read it as written and understand this guy's first language is probably not English, so there's a, 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 a but you get the gist of it, folks. Hi, Jack. I got rid of my debt, have a little gold and silver and some cash. If the USA and Europe is going to crash and it looks like what country... Uh, could be safe. I would like to convert my cash into currency, or are we talking worldwide disaster? Wishing you and your family the best always, Gabriel. Um, so what Gabriel's basically asking there is, you know, I've got my euros, and you've got your dollars, and you're telling me, and a lot of people are telling us, that eventually the U.S. economy and the dollar is going to collapse, euro with it, um, where can I put my money? What currency is safe for me right now? And I, I have an awful answer for you here. My opinion is none. Now, I want to be clear with what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that if, the Europe, uh, if Europe and the U.S. collapse, that there won't be some country somewhere where the currency will maintain its value. What I'm telling you is there's no way to know if any country is going to pull that off. If you ask me who had the best opportunity to do that, I would tell you if they get 20 years to be prepared for it, China. But you may not get 20 years for them to be prepared for it. It is, it is going to be whatever countries over the next two decades, if we can buy that much time, and we're being forced to buy that much time by these other countries, can invest enough of their wealth and their money into hard assets like gold, silver, agriculture, mining. The people that control natural resources in the future will control the global economy. That's what it's going to be all about. Instead, we're going to go and build our economy on a new etherical thing like carbon footprints uh, and, and a healthcare concept that's ridiculous. While we're doing that, the rest of the world is moving toward commodities. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. And one thing we have to remember is that in other countries, when they invest in commodities, it's not like here. We have capitalism, and if I go buy a gold mine, it's my gold mine. If China invests in a gold mine in Africa, it belongs to the nation. I'm not saying it's right. In fact, I don't like it at all. But from an economic standpoint, while the only nation that really is a still a, a stand of capitalism is acting like a fascist state instead of a capitalist state, economically it's more viable for the future. But short term... I don't think there's any safe place for your money other than in hard assets like land that will produce gold and silver and anything that you'll need for the rest of your life. You can make a one-time or very long-term purchase of things like food, 
things like tools, things like that. That's where I think your money belongs right now. I'm not saying don't put any money in stocks or don't put any money in mutual funds because, again, I forecast the false recovery. I think there's some money to be made and harvested in the, in the midterm right now. Uh, but you've got to be very careful with that and get a very creative financial advisor that, that, that knows how to protect enough of your money to set aside some risk capital to do that. But rather than just being me, Jack Spirico, the wingnut redneck that relocated from the coal mines of Pennsylvania to Texas telling you there ain't really a safe currency to stick your money into right now, lives here from a United States Congressman, Ron Paul, uh, from something he put out very early this year called a dire warning. And uh, the whole thing's about five minutes long. I'm going to play about two to three minutes of it. He's going to start out answering the exact question we just got from Germany. Where would I put my money? Where would I put it? And here's what Dr. Ron Paul, United States Congressman from Texas, has to say about that. It's impossible to predict the time when confidence will be lost, but it can come quickly. Resorting to buying other paper currencies will not be of much help. When the dollar crashes, most likely the purchasing power of all currencies, since all currencies hold dollars as a reserve, will go down as well. This means that dollars and other currencies will go into buying consumer items, precious metals, and other physical properties. Consumer prices will soar as well as interest rates. The central bank will lose control, and the more they inflate, the worse the confidence becomes. The interest rates will respond to these efforts by rising sharply. If the Fed tries to reverse the run on the dollar, interest rates will also soar, and the pain on the American citizens will be of such proportion that political chaos will result. Either scenario leads to political and social chaos, the third event, and the most dangerous. With no ability of the federal government to fund its commitments, international or domestic, major changes will occur in our system. The social unrest will elicit cries for government to exert unusual force to head off a complete breakdown of law and order. The ultimate trap will be set for a system of government claiming to protect a free society. If more power and police authority are not given to the federal government, it will be argued that only anarchy will result. If more government policing power is given, it will mean a lethal threat to civil liberties. Already, we have permitted the notion that a single person, the attorney general or the president, can decide who is an enemy combatant, thus denying that individual the right of habeas corpus, permitting indefinite detentions without charges made. This attitude towards civil liberties has changed significantly since the fear built around 9-11. Yes, I know, declaring one an enemy combatant is reserved only for the radical Muslims engaged in terrorism against the United States. To be reassured by this reasoning is quite dangerous and naive. Logic should not lead us to equate suspects with terrorists and include American citizens. And yet, this has already been set by precedent. Under difficult circumstances, our political leaders will not be hesitant to use these powers to maintain order. Tragically, the people may even demand it. We are rapidly moving toward a dangerous time in our history. Society as we know it is vulnerable to political and social unrest. This impending crisis comes as a consequence of our flawed foreign and domestic economic policies, a silly notion about money, ignorance about central banking, and ignoring the onerous power and mischief of out-of-control intelligence agencies our unsustainable welfare state and a willingness to sacrifice privacy and civil liberties in an attempt to achieve safety and security from an inept government. Dangerous well, there you go. United States Congressman Ron Paul telling you, well, more than I did, and uh, probably a little bit more eloquently 
It's hard for me to believe that that man didn't get more votes for President of the United States when I listen to him talk. I have a restored faith in what's possible uh, if the people in our government would simply look at one thing, and that is making a commitment to liberty. But it doesn't seem like they plan on doing that anytime soon. And unfortunately, I wish they could tell you that the upbeat note of what Dr. Paul finishes with on this video, and I did cut it short to keep the show within time today, um, I don't have a lot of hope in it right now. Um, I don't have a lot of hope in the average person to get out there next election and the next election and the next election because it will take that many and clean out all the incumbents. It ain't going to happen this year, folks. All that we're going to do is swap some chairs around this year with D's and R's on them. That's it. So I'm back to my original answer. Your money is not safe as money as, as currency anywhere. It's only safe as money. And to me, money is gold and silver. And the other way to make your money safe is to put it into assets you were going to buy anyway because inflation is going to kick in sooner or later. And we're going to have a, a position where the, the value of the money is weakened. Even if it doesn't crash, it's going to weaken and weaken and weaken like it always has. Again, look at what you could have bought for a quarter in 1964. Look what a quarter buys you now. That pretty much tells you the entire story under the best of circumstances. All we can expect from this point forward is worse than that performance. That's it. There's no way it's going to be any better. So with that and that little bit of a depressing note and some good words from Ron Paul, let's go ahead and move on to the uh, next question. Okay, this next one is interesting. It's something I talked about briefly before. I've never really talked about it on my show. When I was on Baldy and the Blonde, they were talking about it, and I recommended that you guys look into it. Well, uh, a guy named Scott from Missouri sent me the following email. Jack, I'm not a conspiracy nut, quote-unquote, but I thought you would be interested in reading this. And It's an article from The Atlantic called A Detention Bill You Ought to Read More Carefully. And it says, if something like this with this language, what could the president decide? Such other matters as the president considers appropriate, the president must submit the regulations and guidance to the appropriate committees of Congress no later than 60 days after enactment. Uh, to be able to decide uh, to infinitely detain an American citizen based on other matters as the president considers appropriate, wow, Scott Springfield, Missouri. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what this, uh, what this new bill is. It's S. Uh, 3081, S.3081, if you Google that, you'll find all kinds of information on it. I'm going to read a part of the bill that everybody's upset about to you right off of GovTrack in a second. But let's talk about the article that Scott sent me first from The Atlantic. Here's a little bit of that article. It comes from a guy named Mark Ambinder, A-M-B-I-N-D-I, Ambinder, Ambinder, I'm not sure. Why is the national security community treating the Enemy Belligerent Interrogation Detention and Prosecution Act of 2010 introduced by Senators John McCain and Joseph Lieberman on Thursday as a standard proposal as a simple response to the administration's choices in the aftermath of the Christmas Day bombing attempt? A close reading of the bill suggests it would allow the U.S. military to detain U.S. citizens without trial indefinitely in a U.S.-based and suspect, suspected activity. Read the bill here, and then read the summarized points after the jump. According to the summary, the bill sets out a comprehensive policy for detention, interrogation, and trial of suspected enemy belligerents who are believed to have engaged in hostilities against the United States by requiring these individuals to be held in military custody, interrogated for their intelligence value, and not provided with a Miranda warning. It would require these belligerents to be coded as high-value deta high detainees, to be held in military custody, 
and interrogated for their intelligence value by a high-value detainee interrogation team established by the president. The HIG, of course, was established to bring a sophisticated interrogation capacity to the federal justice system. Um, and I'll leave the article there because I want to flip over to the actual bill. I want to read something to you. I know that some of my audience is big on, hey, we need to fight terrorism. I agree. There's real terrorism out there. I think there's also some bullshit about terrorism out there. But there's real people that want to do us harm. And if you don't believe that, go walk in the boots of a soldier for a day, and you'll find out what it's like. But there is a propensity for government to use crisis and danger as an excuse to do things they would otherwise not be able to get away with. For instance, the chief of staff for Barack Obama, uh, Rahm Emanuel, stated, you should never let a crisis go to waste. So we have a Christmas Day bombing. Now we have to make the crisis work. What I want you to think about is how down on things like Guantanamo Bay Barack Obama was and how all the people were screaming and yelling about Bush for trampling on our liberties. And this is what's going on under his administration with a Democrat and a Republican senator working together to get this legislation pushed through the Senate. The one part of the bill, and this is the exact text of the bill, I want to be clear about that. This isn't some blogger. This isn't somebody out there trying to you know, shape it to their own agenda. And trust me, folks, I made sure I got this out of the bill. I'm on GovTrack.us right now reading the exact test of the bill. I'm in uh, Section D, uh, Part 2 of Section... Uh, actually, let's see. It's actually Section 3, Subset D, if you want to look it up yourself. Uh, section 2 under Subset D. Uh, and it starts out, and I'll read it. Criteria for designation of individuals is a high-value detainee. The regulations required by the subsection shall include the criteria for detaining an individual as a high-value detainee based on the following. A. The poten a potential threat to the, of the individual poses for an attack on civilians or civilian facilities within the United States or upon U.S. citizens or United States civilian facilities abroad at the time of capture or when coming under the custody or control of the United States. In other words, if you have the potential to be a threat to the United States, you could be detained. These are or. These are not ends, right? You don't need to be all of these. You need to be one of these. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt there. That's pretty subjective, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt on point A, even though we shouldn't. Point, and I, there's a reason, because I don't have to give them, I don't have to, to, to read anything into this if I just keep going. B, the potential threat the individual poses to United States military personnel or United States military facilities at the time of capture or when coming under the custody or control of the United States. So if you pose a threat to our military personnel, benefit of the doubt again. Let's say it's legitimate. It's not subjective. The potential intelligence value of the individual. That's point C. That's the whole line, the potential intelligence value of the individual. So basically, let's not give them the benefit of the doubt at this point. If they believe that you have intelligence value because they say so, you can fall under the provisions of this act. D, membership in Al-Qaeda or in a terrorist group affiliated with Al-Qaeda. So what makes a terrorist group affiliated with Al-Qaeda? That the group says they're affiliated or that the government says that they're affiliated? I don't know. Can we see this maybe as this, if this law gets through being expanded, like slipped in at the last minute to just change it to, hell, well, aren't all terrorist groups dangerous? 
So, I mean, there's Al-Qaeda, and then there's terrorist groups that aren't really affiliated with it, but they're dangerous, right? So let's say a terrorist group. Remember what other government reports have said uh, constitutes homegrown terrorism, like descending with your government. But let's not read into it, because all I need is the last one, E. Again, uh, Section 3, Subset D, Section 2 of Subset D, Part E of Subset 2. Such other matters as the President considers appropriate. Talk about broad stroke legislation. Broad stroke right there. Remember, John McCain sponsoring this bill. Guy that was tortured in, in, in a Vietnamese prison. The guy that spent five years or more, was it six years, in the Hanoi Hilton. They said, we cannot do these things. We should not treat people this way. Here it is. Such other matters as the president considers appropriate. Now, there is a provision that says that the president must state what's appropriate 60 days after the law is enacted. But you know how things tend to stay open and the president is given powers to modify this in the future. Here's the thing. Everybody that hates Barack Obama is freaking out about this right now. I keep telling you folks, when you see legislation like this, it doesn't matter who the current president is. It's setting a precedent that the president has this power in the first place. So basically what this says is the president can decide it's appropriate to detain people indefinitely, and if he decides so, then it shall be. And what does this actually do? This means you don't get Miranda rights, you don't get representation, you don't get a lawyer, you don't have to be charged, you can be uh, imprisoned indefinitely. Folks, I know that some of you are thinking this is like conspiracy stuff. Like the guy said that wrote in, uh, Scott said, I'm not a conspiracy. This is not a conspiracy. This is U.S. government bill in front of our Senate, sponsored by two of the absolute most powerful senators. Yeah, two of the most powerful senators in our government. John McCain is a very powerful individual, folks. He may not be the majority or the minority leader, but he's been around for a long time. You've been in the Senate that long, you have a lot of power. Joseph Lieberman, who was able to run as an independent, but still caucuses with his Democratic buddies that stabbed him in the back, has been around forever as well. Both people that have taken shots at either the presidency or the vice presidency. These are not weak senators. These aren't new guys on the block. This is the old guard. They're supposed to be standing up. John McCain, an American hero, who, despite all my disagreements with a lot of things that he has had to say, I've always said, you've got to respect the man's heroism. You have to. I don't feel quite so passionate about that anymore after reading this bill. That somebody like that would give such sweeping powers to the presidency. This is not to protect us. This is the strength of the power of government. It's not about whether or not it will actually become law or become used in the way that all the freaks will say it's going to be used. They're going to use this to round us up, right? I mean, to make no mistake about it, this is not like a loose association with McCain. I'm reading under March 4, 2010, in the Senate of the United States, at the head of the bill, Mr. McCain for himself, Mr. Lieberman, Mr. Inhofe, Mr. Brown of Massachusetts, Mr. Wicker, Mr. Shambliss, and, and so he's got the first guy listed on this. Folks, we can't give powers like this to the state. I'm sorry. Ever. 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 Period. End of story. This is one to call your clowns about right here, especially your senatorial clowns, and tell them they better not do this. That, that this is not about preventing terrorism. Because remember, these guys already have a lot of power to do these things with terrorists. And again, the one line that really bothers me in this is, as the president deems appropriate. 
there is zero restriction to that whatsoever. This thing needs to die at death. Let's move on from there and talk about something maybe a little more upbeat. Let's see what I can find here in the box. You guys are asking about the pressing things this week. All right, here's a good one. This is just feel good, and I like it, and it makes me happy, and it feels like I helped somebody, and it's good because the citizen has become empowered uh, and, and reduced the power and, and the size and scope of government with a single action. This is from Deanie, and I'll leave her name at that. Uh, Deanie or Denny, I'm not sure how you'd say her name, but let's say Denny. I think that's right. Jack, just wanted to let you know that I, after I listened to this show, which was episode 417, Reducing Your Tax Footprint, I was able to get an appointment with our tax appraiser. Provided proof that our farm is being used and has been used over the past five years for agricultural purposes. Pecan Orchard. And we qualified for a reduction in property taxes, a savings of $588 this year. Thanks for a great show, Danny. I am freaking happy for you, man. I love it. I love it. I love seeing a citizen say, you know what? I don't have to pay as much as you say and prove it and even get a bureaucrat to capitulate and put 580, call it 600 bucks back into the family budget this year that won't be given away to the local government in the form of property tax. Take that money and invest it in something. Make the farm worth more uh, to you. Make it produce more. Buy gold or silver with it. Tuck it away. Do something with that money productive. Don't just go out and blow it. I know this person. She won't do it. Uh, but I'll tell you what. You can do these things, folks. So there you go. Just a quick little one there. Feedback from a listener. Absolutely awesome. Remember, you can do this too. It doesn't have to be an agricultural exemption. Go get the last 10 properties that sold in your, your neighborhood that were of equivalent size, shape, and value. And go down and challenge your property taxes. Go challenge them. Take everybody with you. You know, like I said on the show, show up with yourself. If they tell you no, say, you know what? I'm coming back with five neighbors. Go back with five neighbors. If they don't get it, then go back with ten neighbors. Sooner or later, they'll take what you're saying seriously because they don't want you to show up with a line stretching around the building, everybody submitting and resubmitting their paperwork again. Sooner or later, they're not going to be able to hold that back. That's a peaceful, legal tax revolt. And people all across our country are being screwed right now, absolutely screwed by their local tax offices. They're taxing their property at inflated values. Plain and simple, there's no other way around it. The last assessment I got when I went down to challenge it, my statement was, hey, look, you find somebody that will pay me this much money for my house, and they'll buy a house tomorrow, because I will give it to them for 10% under this. And that was reality. There was no way that my house was going to sell for its assessed value. It's important that you challenge things like this, especially things like property tax values. It's not only something you can challenge. It's not only something you have a right to challenge. It's something that mathematically it's very easy to prove that you're right about. The value of a property is simple. What will somebody pay for it? You know, in the accounting practices we talked about, you would call that mark-to-market. The way you do that and the way every real estate agent in the world does it, they look in your neighborhood, in your area, for like properties that recently sold. So do that, compare it. Now, be smart. If the number's higher and you're undervalued, keep your mouth shut. If it's about the same, if it's within 5%, 10%, I'd let it go. But if your property's overvalued by 20% or more, you need to go down there and challenge it. The savings could be a lot more than 588 That was just an example here. So let's go ahead and take another uh, piece of listener feedback. Okay, here's a guy that gets it. The guy's name's Kirk. Uh, Kirk says, 
My girlfriend is taking a 12-week permaculture certification course. This had me thinking about many of the things which you've talked about with permaculture. My question is this. Due to the nature of permaculture, would people even recognize your, quote, yard, unquote, as a food source? Couldn't one design their permaculture farm in a manner that is much less obvious as a food source? Mostly edible flowers and roots in the front, for instance. My question, the question came to mind when I remembered what Dave Canterbury and many others said about growing your own food, that it makes you a, quote, target, unquote. Thanks, Jack. Um, I'll tell you what. He's absolutely right. And it's up to you how your garden looks. But the only reason that I have all these nice straight raised beds in my little suburban house right now is because I have a short-term plan to sell. And I know what suburbanites are looking for when they buy a house. And I'm trying to give them what they want so I can make the most reasonable sale of my property for when I leave. So I'm, I'm leaving with a little profit versus a little bit of loss. To do my property properly in, in permaculture techniques to a point where it would be so mature that I could still sell into that market or niche sell it to somebody that that's what they wanted would take me more time than I have. So I've stuck with more conventional methodologies. But when I move to Arkansas and you come up there, you'll look at it and it'll just look like a whole bunch of pretty plants. Some will be edible, some won't. Many will be supporting species for other species. There will be lots of trees, some will have fruit, but it won't look like a well-manicured, straight-line garden. I have no, no interest in doing that. It's not just about not being a target, though. Here's the thing. This target stuff is crap. It's bullshit, folks. This stuff, if you have a garden, then the evil hordes will come steal your tomatoes. Listen, if we ever get into a breakdown that's that bad... Being a human being converting oxygen into CO2 will make you a target. The only way you're going to survive without being a target at all is to go down in a hole in the ground and not have any signs of life in your area. I mean, that's the, the extreme these people are talking about, that's where we would have to go. I'll tell you what, I'm not living in a hole in the ground. All right, There's a point at which I'll say I've, I've retracted far enough, I've bugged out far enough, I've gone back far enough, this is a line in the sand. Cross it under your own peril. And if I die that way, hey, give me liberty or give me death, right? There's only I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into a prison willingly, and I'm not gonna turn around to avoid a prison and create one for myself and go in there and self imprison myself. So the target thing, I'm not that big a deal on. I do think for small scale stuff like you know really bad suppressed areas. Uh, if you've got a great big farm with 40 acres and rows and rows of vegetables, obviously there's a potential there for looting and stealing. And that goes on in you know peacetime and normal times. Farmers' fields are raided all the time. So I do think that is a case where permaculture helps you with that. Many of the plants you would be growing, people wouldn't even know were food if you put them in front of it and said, there it is. They wouldn't know what to do with it. It doesn't look like what they're accustomed to. It's not peppers, tomatoes, corn. Right? They don't. They just look at it. I don't understand. In my video I did where I was driving around the city of Frisco, I showed you food in plain sight that nobody would recognize. How many sweet potatoes are being grown in our townships now because people think the vines are pretty? And, and you know uh, things like uh, yucca plant and the yucca root that's underneath them. And there's all kinds of things out there like that. But to me, the big thing that you, you quit being a target for when you do permaculture the right way, and you have all these interplantings and all this diversity and tomatoes growing right with beans, but the tomatoes and beans are growing with comfrey and basil and... And, and all types of other plants, maybe things that you don't even use. 
uh, directly. They're just nutrient-based plants or they're support plants, uh, like different flowers and things like that. Not even edible flowers, just flowers that bring in a lot of pollinators and predators. It doesn't just make you not a target for the evil hordes. It makes you not a target for pests. Because here comes your little Colorado potato beetle. And he's looking, flying around, looking for some potatoes. He's accustomed to seeing the shape of a potato leaf and these little clumps. And that's what his species is designed to find. And go in there and infest that in large numbers. When those potatoes are surrounded with all different shapes, sizes, smells, and colors, a few of them will get in. A few of them will figure it out. But the vast majority of them won't. It definitely reduces your target profile to pest insects. So it's definitely a big advantage to permaculture. From there, let's go ahead and take another. And I do think it would help you with potential people raiding your food. But again, if you're worried about the evil hordes, right? if you're worried about the mutant zombie bikers, if you're worried about the absolute, complete and total collapse where every major city in the United States has burned, right? and people are, are, are really out there and half the population is dead and 10% of what's left are on motorcycles running around terrorizing people in that type of Hollywood scenario, oh my God, please prepare for what's most likely and stop freaking out about things that are highly unlikely. And if we ever get there again, whether you have a garden or not, it's not going to matter. Existing will make you a target. Let's go on to another question. Here's a question. I wouldn't call this a survival question, but I'm going to take it anyway because it, it talks about the stress on our system from a waste standpoint, from a shipping standpoint, from an interconnectivity standpoint, to our dependence on systems like delivery systems, uh, financial systems, trade agreements, and waste disposal. It's just interesting here. So this comes from Eric. Eric says, I was driving through my neighborhood this morning uh, on trash pickup day, doing my usual, wow, look how much trash we've created in three-day inner monologue. We also have to provide our own trash can. So if, you, if your trash can lid is not attached, the trash men will often drop it right into the trash truck and leave you with a now lidless receptacle, usually lying on its side in the middle of the street. I'm glad they take such pride in their work. Anyway, many of the cans are now lidless, and I noticed that most of the trash on the site was just packaging. Led me to mentally going over what I throw away. And yes, 90% or more of what I throw away is packaging of some kind. This got me contemplating the concept of packaging, why we need so damn much of it. For example, I recently brought an air pressure yard sprayer, the kind you use to spread fertilizer or bug spray. As you know, it's essentially a one-gallon plastic vessel with a handle on top and a hose spray on the side. When I bought it, it came unassembled with all the various pieces, including the instruction manual, inside the empty plastic vessel. And the handle screwed on the top. It was basically self-contained. However, the company that made it felt the need to put it inside a cardboard box. Why? So they can print the company name and a few selling points and warnings on the cardboard? Why not print those on the blank surface of the plastic vessel itself? And it goes on. But I'll just stop there because here is what um, he gets it at the end. An argument could be made that the vessel is round, so putting in a square box makes it easier to stack in large quantities at the warehouse or in pallets on a shipping truck. Here's an idea that strained my genius, make the vessel square. He's right, and that's why a lot of stuff was in packaging, because it doesn't stack. It is not just because it doesn't stack. It doesn't stack uniformly. Um, now, making a square sprayer, it's not going to sell well. People aren't going to like it. It's going to be more difficult to machine. You still have the pump on the top. It's going to cost money to retool. There's a million reasons they won't do this. And here's the reality. 
They're always going to make the device in the best shape possible for the market and for the function that it serves. All right, that's the two things they're going to say. What is this supposed to functionally do? And what market are we making it for? What's most likely to sell on those two components? The, 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 uh, the aesthetic appearance and the functionality. Right? So, square yard pump, probably not the best thing in the world. But here's what it really comes down to. Even if the item would ship well without packaging, if you could actually stack more into a shipping container without packaging, it needs to be set up perfectly so that it's on pallets, so they can be lifted with forklifts and it can be moved, and here's the big one. There needs to be such uniformity in the packaging that companies can use computers to track shipments, costs, etc. ahead of time. What this tells us is unlike the days where, obviously, if we built this thing locally, and I had a little local plant here building bug sprayers and, and chemical sprayers, which please don't use bug spray and chemical spray. I'm hoping he's going to use things like garlic spray and neem oil and, you know, stuff like that, uh, organic good stuff on your garden instead of harsh chemicals. He probably is. Listen to the show anyway. Um, but if I'm going to build something like that locally and I'm going to distribute it to 20 local hardware stores, well, his method is fine. Right, but when I get into a point where I'm manufacturing a million of something, maybe a million of something a month, and I'm shipping it from China to 20 different nations in containers on, on cargo ships, that's where all this packaging starts to come into play. It's not just packaging to make sure the stuff arrives safe, but to make sure that everything is compartmentalized, can be packed the exact same way, so its load distribution is the same way. None of this is inherently bad, other than the massive amount of waste it creates. The, the bigger problem with this is it shows us the dependency on all the systems that get the stuff from one place to another. And it tells us that one hiccup in any of these distribution channels, and it's over. One trade agreement falls. The price of fuel goes up too much. There's a shortage on some component needed to manufacture a, a key thing that is distributed throughout the world. Anything, and it's over. And it happens all the time, and we just don't notice it if it's not that inconvenient for us. A few years ago, uh, there was a, way too much rain in the Mexican desert, and tequila prices went through the roof because of the agave plant that they harvest to make tequila. It was rotting out and not maturing and not being able to make tequila to replace the reserves for the next batch of 100% uh, agave tequila. Since I like margaritas, I noticed. If you don't like margaritas, you may never have noticed. But that's one little plant that did that. In one little region, they did that. Let's think about something a little bit larger. Packaging is a, is a, is a, a key indicator of a symptom that causes the disease. The global interdependence that we have, the expectation on cheap goods that serve a function, it's nowhere near as quality built as it used to be years ago. But we've moved to a society that's a throwaway society, and as long as I can go down and buy another one for nine ninety five, I'll do that rather than pay ninety nine ninety five for one for once for my entire life. And I'll prefer it that way and I'll amateurize it out over my life. This is the subconscious math that's done with people and why they like to buy cheap crap. I'm gonna give you the advice today, I always buy the best you can afford. The very best. It's only expensive once. All right, from there, let's go ahead and move on to another piece of feedback. Here's what I'm going to do. It's very, very hard, and I'm going to be as short as I can with it just because I feel that this question comes in in a variety of forms over and over again. Um, it comes from Ben, and Ben says, Dear Jack, first question, what advice would you give a young person enlisting in the United States military at this time? Second question, what advice would you give to the people who love, care, and respect a young person who's about to enlist in the United States military? 
the book, quote unquote, well, short story. Middle girl of my best friend lives in Wisconsin, going to graduate high school in June and join the Marines. She's been planning for this for six months and ready to go. She and several other local future Marines have been meeting at, with a recruiting sergeant for several months in a sort of pre-boot camp training regiment. She enjoys it a great deal and is very gun ho. I, I think this young woman and her two sisters, as, as I think of this young woman and her two sisters as children I never had. I'm proud of her, but the future of America is looking bleak, and I want to know what advice I should give her when I make the trip for her graduation. Thank you, Jack. Ben from West Texas. All right, here you go. First thing, one, it sounds to me like she is already part of what they call DEP, or at least they did when I was uh, when I was in, which is the late entry program, which means she's probably already enlisted at this point if she's doing all that. So it's a foregone conclusion. She's made a commitment. She's going to go. So the best advice you can give her is to do her job as a Marine to the best of her ability, take pride in what she's doing, belief that what she's doing has purpose and honor. And to make the most out of her experience. But remember above all things that when she enlisted or when she enlists, she will put her hand up and she will swear an oath. An oath that will mention things like officers and non-commissioned officers and the President of the United States. But first and foremost, her oath shall be to the Constitution of the United States of America. And those who think that maybe we should be not putting our young people into the military now, we should be advising them against it, whatever, I need as many people in our military today that understand the meaning of that oath as possible. So if things do go wrong, that oath carries the day. I would tell her immediately to get over to Oath Keepers, become a member of Oath Keepers as somebody going into service, not just somebody in service or prior service. I guarantee you they'll be happy to have her to read and understand that site, and to make it part of who and what she is. Had you asked me the same question in a situation where the person has not yet joined the military, I have a variety of answers for you. Number one, anybody consider joining the military today, go talk to every recruiter you can. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Make sure you know all the options that are available to you, all the jobs that are available to you based on your scores and your aptitude and who you are. Do not make a snap decision because Marines are hardcore and badass, or you see what a Marine looks like in, in dress blues. Um, trust me, as a Marine, you'll wear those dress blues once or twice a year if you're lucky. Most of the time, they'll be covered in mud, You know, unless you have a certain position that it requires it. I had a good buddy was a Marine. He was in the band. He wore his dress blues all the time. Yeah, they look great, but if you're going to be uh, in the field, you're not going to be rolling around those dress blues uh, in the field. Lastly... I can't tell you if I were 17 years old again, if I would join the Army again like I did back then today. There are things that I know and things that I'm concerned about that I never even thought about when I was that young kid. And I was just looking for a way out of the coal region. And I don't know if I could do it today, but I sure as hell respect anybody that does. I'll also tell you this. No matter what anybody says about supporting the beast or the military apparatus or anything, our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, our airmen, and our Coast Guard have honor. They really do. There are shitheads everywhere. And some people don't like when I occasionally use vulgarity. But that's, that's one of the best words I can do, it, to do with it. There are shitheads in every profession. There are priests that molest children. And there are soldiers that do abuse people when they're sent off to war. Some of them because they're shitheads. Some of them, some of them because 
they're damaged by the experience and they were not mentally fit for the 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 what they were asked to endure. Some of them because they were put in impossible situations and eventually snapped. Some just because they're jerks. That should not diminish the 99% that do their duty with honor every day. So don't let anybody put that crap on you. Because if, when they start saying things like, well, they'll turn the military on our own citizens, not with people like this young lady that understand what her oath means, they won't. So we need as many of those as we can. Respect, honor those who serve on a daily basis. Let's go on to another piece of feedback. Okay, as promised, I'm going to tell you something that's in the health care bill that you're just going to go, I don't understand. I don't see how this could possibly be. How the hell did this happen? Well, here you go. So as always, I try to use the, uh, the absolute most credible mainstream news sources I can when I report things like this. This is from CNNMoney.com. CNN, folks, all right? This is not again. Okay. Here we go. Tanning salons. Tanning salons burned by the health care bill. New York, CNNMoney.com. The Obama administration is turning up the heat on tanning salons across the country with the passage of its new health care bill to help fund the $940 billion health care overhaul. A 10% tax on individuals receiving indoor tanning services was tacked on. The initiative is expected to generate $2.7 billion over the next 10 years. Kind of a drop in the bucket, isn't it? Not for the tanning salons, folks. Back to the article. As a result, many salon goers and owners are outraged by the so-called tanning tax to think they're being unfairly targeted by the bill. It's terrible, said Jen Meshon, owner of City Sun Tanning in New York City. You know how they say that passing the bill is a bit like making sausage. Well, this is the weirdest, ugliest piece of sausage to get stuffed into the bill. Uh, City Sun Tanning customers are shocked and disappointed by the tax as well. And Ms. Sean said he expects the tax to hurt business. We'll do everything to keep our customers, but they're very upset by this, he said. When they first hear about the tax, the reaction is, what? How did that get in there? Why are they attacking me? Uh, you know, it's just... I'm not going to read any more of the article. The show's going long already today. Folks, this is why I keep saying why we, we cannot trust government. When you put together a piece of legislation that's 1,600 pages long, this is the kind of crap that gets shoved into it. If we wanted to fix the healthcare industry and we wanted to actually fix the problems that everybody's upset about, it could have been done with about 20 pieces of paper. 20. And I've given you a shortcutted way in the past, I won't reiterate today, but my question is, what next? What are we going to find out is in the health care bill next? Right? What billion dollar taxes? This is $2.7 billion. Where is that money going to come from? It's going to come directly out of jobs in America over a 10-year period. Because when you tax people for something, what do they do? Do they buy more of it? Or they buy less of it. They buy less of it. Which means, first of all, it won't be $2.7 billion because the government won't get its projected money and we'll have to make up the shortfall because it will hurt the industry. It will lead to job layoffs. When we have job layoffs, what do we do? We worsen the economy. This is crap. Just thought you'd like to know. Came to me from a, a listener named Eric who sends me a lot of great stuff. Uh, a really cool guy. There you go. So, Go buy a tanning salon and ask them if uh, you have to pay the tanning tax, tax yet. I haven't yet seen um, exactly when this officially kicks in, but reading this article, it sounds like it already has. So, yes, we yes, we have another sin tax. It's a sin to smoke. We'll tax that. Sin to drink. We'll tax that. I guess it's a sin to have a suntan. 
at least one provided by uh, artificial lighting. I'm not saying I think uh, tanning salons are a great place to go or good for you or don't pose any health risks, but how the hell they justified this, I don't know. Here's another example of your government running away on it, folks, just stealing more money because they can. Uh, let's take another piece of feedback. We're going to talk a little bit about climate change and climate change legislation and cap and trade and how the government has a vested interest in it beyond saving the planet and saving the polar bears because, oh God, they fell into the ocean and they're going to drown. Uh, we're going to talk about what's really behind some of this and some of the shenanigans that are going on. I, I wish I would have known about this last week, honestly, because it would have fit very well into uh, the two shows I did on economics last week about how the government plays games with your money and makes sure that all of their buddies are profitable. Here you go. This is almost hard to believe. It really is. This is from Barbara Hollingsworth, who is the local opinion editor for the Washington Examiner. So, again, another mainstream publication, not exactly a bastion of uh, conservatism or anything where you just want to bash the current administration and would have hit it at another time. Uh, this is just normal, everyday, quite liberal newspaper. Here is the uh, article dated April 20, 2010, again by Barbara Hollingsworth. Here you go. Here's the title. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. Wait for it. Fannie Mae owns a patent on residential cap-and-trade exchange. You paid for it, people. When you bailed them out, use, you fit the bill to make sure this was in place. Here you go. When he wasn't busy helping create a $127 billion mess for taxpayers to clean up, Fed, former Fannie Mae Chief Executive Officer Franklin Raines Two of his top underlings and select individuals in the green movement were investing in a patent system to trade residential carbon credits. Patent number 6904336 was approved by the U.S. Patent and Trade Office on November 7, 2006, the day after the Democrats took control of Congress. Former Senator John Sununu, Republican New Hampshire, criticized the award at the time, pointing out that it had nothing to do with Fannie Mae's charter, nothing to do with making mortgages more affordable. It wasn't about mortgages. It was about greenbacks. The patent, which Fannie Mae confirmed it still owns, with Cantor Fitzgerald subsidy, uh, CO2E.com, gives the mortgage giant a lock on the fledgling carbon trading market, thus also giving it a major financial stake in the success of the cap-and-trade legislation. In other words, it's in Fannie Mae's best interest for cap-and-trade to come through because all of the residential training of carbon, they'll be able to get a little fee for every single one that goes through. Is the holder on the patent of how to do it. Back into the... Uh, into the build or the, into the uh, article now. Besides Reigns, the other quote inventors unquote are former Fannie Mae vice president and deputy general counsel G. Scott Lisms, who provided legal advice on Fannie Mae's debt and equity offerings. So instead of like seeing to the company, he was helping build this thing. Former Fannie Mae president, vice president uh, Robert Shahadi, who now runs Greenspace Investment Financial Services out of his 5,002 square foot Clarksburg home. That sounds like a really environmentally friendly home, folks. 2008 Barack Obama fundraiser Kenneth Berlin, an environmental law partner at Scadap Arps. Michael DeSidero, director of the National Green Building Certification Program, which trains green monitors, whatever those are. I thought a green monitor was a lizard. Uh, former Cantor Fitzgerald employee uh, Elizabeth Arner Cavi, wife of Democratic donor Brian Cavi, 
and Stanton Park Group, which received 200000 last uh, year to lobby on climate legislation. Uh, and Janet Bartles, a widow of former CO2E.com CEO Carton Bartles, three weeks before Carton Bartles was killed in the September 11th attacks, he filed for another patent on the software used in 2003 to set up the Chicago Climate Exchange. The patent, which covers both cap and trade parts of Obama's top domestic energy initiation, gives Fannie Mae proprietary control over an automated trading system that pulls and sells credits for the hard-to-quantify residential carbon reduction efforts. I didn't even know residential was part of this, such as solar panels and high-energy, high-efficiency appliances to companies and utilities that don't meet emissions reduction targets. Depending on where the Environmental Protection Agency sets its arbitrary CO2 standards, that could be every company in America. The patent summary describes how carbon and other pollutants yet to be determined would be combined into a single emissions pool and traded, just as Fannie's toxic portfolio of subprime mortgages were. Let me read it again, because this is such validation. The patent summary describes how carbon and other pollutants yet to be determined would be combined into a single emissions pool and traded just as Fannie's toxic portfolio of subprime mortgages were. Fannie earns no money on this patent, Communications Director Amy uh, Bontablis told the Washington Examiner. We can't conjecture as to cap and trade legislation. But passes of the legislation would create an artificial government-mandated, trillion-dollar carbon-traded market that would drive up the price of energy, indirectly making housing more expensive. If the proprietary emissions trading system functions like other exchanges of the New York Stock Exchange, which makes most of its revenue on listing and trading fees, its owners could see extremely generous profits. So just its owners, right? Who's it, who owns it? Fannie Mae. Especially with a patent that keeps out competition for two decades, 20-year monopoly on the trading of residential carbon credits, which today are worth nothing and don't exist, and with the stroke of a pen and the passage of cap and trader. Remember what I said about cap and hook. That would be, they'll get it by hook or crook, and they're going to get it by hook. All right? So Fannie Mae, a quasi-governmental entity who congressionally mandated uh, mission is to make housing more affordable, has been behind the scenes participant in the carbon trading scheme that would do just the opposite. In January, Europol announced that up to 90% of the volume in the European, uh, Europe, 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 European Union's own carbon trading market was fraudulent, costing EU members $5 billion during the two previous 18-month period. Uh, that would be just the tip of the iceberg if Congress were to make a similar mistake. But if it does, thanks to Rain and his fellow inventors, quote-unquote, Fannie Mae will be laughing all the way to the bailed-out bank. First of all, who is this Barbara Hollingsworth chicken? Can I get her on the phone, uh, on the show? I'd love to have her here for an interview. Awesome journalistic work. This is what people like you should be doing. Absolutely exceptional. The big one there, though, was, the, the, <coughs> when you look at what they're saying, that, again, I have to read this because it, it so justifies what I've been saying this is all about. The patent describes how carbon and other pollutants yet to be determined would be combined into a single emissions pool and traded just as Fannie's toxic portfolio of subprime mortgages were. So you see what this is. This isn't about a cleaner planet. This is about using... So what they did at Fannie Mae is they said, hey, look, 
We have all of these accountants that do all of this really cool financial services work that take all these mortgages and allow us to trade them. So if we can trade them and pass the, the risk to somebody else, when we do that, we can make money off it and we can create money out of thin air and we can, we can print money. And on top of it all, you know, we're doing it all with mathematics and computer algorithms. So, can't we take those computer algorithms and mathematics and things like that, do something else similar with it in the housing sector? And some genius said we could do it with that carbon credit stuff. So they took the same scheme they were using to trade real estate and now are going to use it to trade carbon. What did I say this was about? I said carbon trading is not about the earth. It's not about saving the environment. It's about creating a new fiat currency by creating a new commodity that doesn't exist, carbon credits, with the stroke of a pen, become the largest single traded commodity in the world. And then they get packaged into derivatives just like real estate. I told you this. And sold and resold and repackaged and resold and leveraged and shorted and, 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 and called long. One after the other after the other and insured again. So then the insurance gets packaged and all of a sudden the printing prints run again. False recovery booming, hooker by crook, it shall be done, and it's all about creating money out of thin air. Who created money out of thin air with the real estate boom and took none of the blame and got all of the bailout? Fannie Mae and their buddy Freddie Mac, right? They did it. They did the scheme. They've now created a new scheme. Actually, they created it all the way back in 2006. No one seems to want to talk about this that allows exactly what I said would be done with carbon to be done with carbon. And here's the big one, in the residential real estate market. But you see who it affects. It doesn't affect you as a homeowner. Don't think that you have a really energy efficient home. You're going to be able to trade your carbon credits. It's about the people that manufacture appliances, solar panels, energy systems, all the companies that manufacture the equipment that goes into your home, they've developed a proprietary patent technology to allow carbon traders to be created at that, traded at that level. And this lady's right. Barbara's right. This will drive up the cost of housing in America, specifically new housing. It will make uh, Fannie Mae extremely wealthy and fix all that bailout stuff. And when it happens, they'll say, look, see, it was a good thing to bail them out. And they'll maybe move a little bit of money over to uh, uh, Freddie Mac. Or maybe this is what they'll do. Maybe they'll say, Fannie Mae's got it figured out. Let's consolidate Fannie and Freddie together and make it one. So there's a true monopoly on government, uh, uh, government set mortgages in our country. Folks, we never learn and we don't listen. And uh, as Ron Paul said earlier, it's, it's really about ignorance uh, when it comes to, to fiscal policy and to the Federal Reserve and ignorance about all matters that are financial in this country uh, that allows these things to happen. You need to tell your friends about this one. The next time you hear about saving polar bears, you know, send them to this. Again, WashingtonExaminer.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Cap and trade is not about saving polar bears. It's about making money out of thin air. And the masters of making money out of thin air inside that quasi-government organization have developed a trading scheme to make more money out of thin air on something that doesn't even exist. Isn't that great? This is why you have to stay informed. Let's take another piece of feedback and get ready to wrap up today. So here, uh, I want to go on a, a positive note at the end, but I don't have them for you today. Um, just when you thought you knew everything to worry about being spread as a pandemic or an epidemic, we have something new coming out. This came out on the 22nd of April. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a more positive spin on it uh, after I give you kind of the basics on it. 
This is off of, uh, what is the name of this uh, publication? LifeScience.com. I originally found it on Yahoo News and tracked down the source story. Deadly new fungus emerging in Oregon expected to spread. A deadly airborne new strain of fungus has emerged in Oregon. It has killed nearly one out of four known affected people so far and might also attack animals ranging from dogs to dolphins. It's likely to spread, researchers now warn. The new strain known as VGIIC of the fungus Cryptococcus gatti not only targets humans, but has also proven capable of affecting dogs, cats, alpacas, sheep, and elk. Other strains have infected porpoises. Although it can spread to mammals, it doesn't jump from animal to animal. Instead, people and other animals get it from inhaling spores released by samples of the fungus that infects trees. It is in the environment, and we're exposed to the environment, researcher Edmund Bynes III of Duke University Medical Center told Life Science, and the environmental range has been expanding. California next. While scientists aren't sure at how the highly infectious or virulent fungus emerged in Oregon, they caution that the new strain looks set to expand to California and other neighboring areas. The novel fungus is worrisome because it appears to be a threat to otherwise healthy people, Bind said. Typically, we more often see this fungal disease associated with transplant recipients or HIV-infected patients, but that's not what we're seeing yet. Symptoms can appear two or more months after exposure. Most people never develop symptoms, but those infected have a cough lasting weeks, sharp chest pain, shortness of breath, headache related to meningitis, fever, nighttime sweats, and weight loss. In animals, the symptoms are running nose, breathing problems, nervous system problems, and raised bumps under the skin. Treatment requires months to years of antifungal medications and even surgery to remove large masses of the fungus known as uh, cryptocomus that can develop in the body. So far, it cannot be prevented. There is no vaccine. The fungus was originally linked to eucalyptus trees in tropical and subtropical climates. It first caused an outbreak in temperate climates on Vancouver Island in 1999. That has now spread to Washington and Oregon, where it infects local trees. The earlier strain, VGIIA major, has killed nearly 9% of 218 patients. After comparing the genes of the new VGIIC strain from Oregon with others, researchers suggested the new strain most likely arose recently, parallel to the outbreak that began on Vancouver Island. So far, it's killed 5 out of 21 patients infected, uh, analyzed in the United States, a nearly 25% mortality rate. Lab studies with immune cells with live mice related to its, uh, it revealed that it is extremely virulent, that is, it can cause severe disease. I think if it kills 25% of the people, I'll leave it there. Let me uh, read a follow-up on Bloomberg Business Week. Make you feel maybe a little bit better about this. This is one of the things I'm going to end with today. This is Friday, April 30th. Uh, the new killer fungus spreading through the Pacific Northwest is part, part reality, but also part hype, experts say. It's definitely real that we've been seeing this fungus in North America since 1999, and it's causing a lot more meningitis than you would expect in the general population. But it's still a rare disease, said Christina Hull, an assistant professor at medical microbiology and immunology and of biomolecular chemistry in the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. Um, crypto, Cryptococcus gatti, historically a resident of more tropical climates, was first discovered in North America in Vancouver Island, British Columbia, 1999. I've kind of read that in the last one. At its peak, we were seeing about 36 cases per million a year. That's a very small number, Hull said. Um, Michael Horseman, an associate professor at pharmacy practice at Texas A&M Health Science, uh, puts the overall death rate in the upper single digits to the lower teens. Not quite what I've been reading in the newspaper. 
Experts had been concerned because the new fungus seemed to have striking characteristics different from those seen in other locales. For one thing, the North American sea gaddy seemed to be attacking otherwise healthy people, not those with compromised immune systems, as was the case in the past. But closer inspection reveals that not all healthy individuals are vulnerable. I don't think everybody's susceptible, Horseman said. Most of the people that have had the disease tend to be older males. They're not necessarily the healthiest guys in the world. A lot of them had liver disease, kidney disease, and lung disease. They were probably smokers. And many may have been taking steroids, which would put them at additional risk, Horseman added. Infection usually starts in the lung, resulting with respiratory systems and coughing. In up to 20% of the cases progresses to meningitis, inflammation of the membranes lining the brain. If you're essentially younger and you're fairly healthy, your risk is pretty low, Horstman said. The risk is also pretty low if you stay in urban areas and aren't digging around in the dirt or hanging around trees for long periods of time. I guess I'm in trouble, folks, because I'm going to keep going out in the trees. The good news is that the infection is usually treatable with antifungal agents. I guess they're leaving out the up to years of treatment. The treatments are pretty effective for most people. There is something that, this is something to keep an eye on, but in terms of global things to be afraid of, it isn't one of them, she added. If I lived or traveled in the Northwest and developed severe respiratory symptoms that didn't resolve over time, I'd probably check it out. I think I'd check out severe respiratory symptoms that didn't resolve over a period of time, period. So I'm, I'm questioning this gal a little bit here. I'm going to Vancouver in the fall at this point. I'm not too concerned about it, Horseman added. Um, I, maybe she's not being taken in context there when she says that. But dude, if you have severe respiratory symptoms that don't resolve over time, I don't care where you're at. You should get that looked into. But here's my point with this. It's not whether or not this killer fungus is truly the killer fungus that will get us. Here's another thing. Up until 1999, wasn't even considered a threat. And the scary thing about this is if we have a flu epidemic and you kind of go out in the middle of nowhere and isolate yourself from the surrounding population, your odds of getting the flu go way, way down. If it's something being spread by the wind and it's a fungus that you inhale, it has the potential to eventually mutate and infect the entire planet. That's reality. Now, don't freak out. Don't go buying a bunch of dust masks or anything like that. Just understand that this type of thing is a potential threat. And I'll tell you what, those masks that we thought were so funny with people overreacting to the swine flu, I'm not sure, but my suspicion is they would probably be pretty effective against fungal spores. So it is something maybe to keep thinking about having in that, uh, that emergency planning kit if something like this ever went rampant. My other concern with this is, is it possible to weaponize something like this? I don't know. Just another reason to uh, stay alert. And again, I'll put links to both of those articles in today's show notes if you want to know more. Let's take one last one and wrap today up. Okay, what I have for you now, and I'm going to pretty much let the video speak for itself, I'm going to play for you a video that's about five minutes long as we wrap up today, give you a few thoughts at the end of it. But this is a danger that's out there for your identity being stolen and for personal information about you being stolen and something that happens all the time, and that is digital photocopying. Um, when you get a job anymore, there's two things your HR person is going to ask you for. Your license... Uh, and your social security card. If you don't have those, they'll ask you for some other things to prove your ability to work. And the first thing she'll do, or he'll do, depending on what you have for an HR manager, I had a female, so that's why I think that way, um, walk down to the copier, make a copy, and put it in your file. And, of course, that file stays in a locked cabinet, and it's relatively safe, I guess, inside your employer's office, even though it has your social security number uh, and your driver's license number. And you wouldn't really worry about that that much, because they have to have that information to pay you, and that's a part of the payroll department and everything. But it just went into the copier. 
Where that copier goes next could be a problem. Here you go. This is off CBS News Investigation YouTube video. I'll put a link to the final video so you can watch it if you want to. But I figured I'd play the audio for you today at the end of today's show so you think a little bit more, especially if you're a person in a company with the authority to control what happens with copiers after they've uh, served all their use. Here you go. This is where your identity could be going right now. A warehouse in New Jersey filled with 6,000 used copy machines ready to be sold. And almost every one of them holds a secret. That's it. That's the hard drive. Nearly every digital copier built since 2002 contains one of these, a hard drive. Like the one on your personal computer, it stores an image of every document scanned, copied, or emailed by the machine. In the process, turning an office staple into a digital time bomb packed with highly personal or sensitive data. We might find as many as 20,000 documents on it. If you're in the identity theft business, this has got to be some kind of pot of gold. Social security numbers, birth certificates, uh, bank records, income tax forms. Uh, that information, I would think, would be very valuable. John Johnson and Sacramento-based company Digital Copier Security develops software that can scrub all the data on hard drives. He's been trying to warn people about the potential risk with no luck. Nobody wants to step up and say, we see the problem, we need, to, we need to solve it. So we went with Johnson into this warehouse, one of 25 across the country, to see how hard it would be to buy a used copier loaded with documents. Turns out, it's pretty easy. I get equipment in all day, every single day. Johnson picked four machines based on price and the number of pages printed. In less than two hours, his selections were packed and loaded onto a truck. The cost? about $300 each. Come on back. Until we unpacked and plugged them in, we had no idea where the copiers came from or what we'd find. We didn't even have to wait for the first one to warm up. We've got some documents here on the glass. This machine came from the city of Buffalo, New York, Police Sex, sex, crimes. sex crimes Division. This machine has uh, 249,000 copies on it, total copies. A print has 42,000 prints on it. It's also used as a fax machine. It took Johnson in about 30 minutes to pull the hard drives out of the copiers. Then using a forensic software program available free on the Internet, he ran a scan, downloading tens of thousands of documents in less than 12 hours. The results were stunning. From the sex crimes unit, detailed domestic violence complaints, and a list of wanted sex offenders. On a second machine from the Buffalo PD Narcotics Unit, we found a list of targets in a major drug raid. The third machine from a New York construction company spit out design plans for a building near Ground Zero in Manhattan. 95 pages of pay stubs with names, addresses, and social security numbers, and $40,000 in copy checks. But it wasn't until we hit print on the fourth machine from a New York insurance company that we obtained the most disturbing documents. 300 pages of individual medical records, everything from drug prescriptions to blood test results to a cancer diagnosis, a potentially serious breach of federal privacy law. You're talking about potentially ruining somebody's life where they could suffer serious social repercussions. Ira Winkler is a former analyst for the National Security Agency and a leading expert on digital security. You have to take some basic responsibility and know that these copiers are actually computers that need to be cleaned up. The Buffalo PD and the New York Construction Company declined comment on our story. As for Affinity, 
they issued this statement that said in part, we are taking the necessary steps to ensure that none of our customers' personal information remains on other previously leased copiers and that no personal information will be released inadvertently in the future. Ed McLaughlin is president of Sharp Imaging, the digital copier company. Has the industry failed in your mind to inform the general public of the potential risks involved with a copier? I think yes. In general, the industry has failed. In 2008, Sharp commissioned a survey on copier security that found 60% of Americans don't know that copiers store images on a hard drive. Sharp tried to warn consumers about the threat, but... It's falling on deaf ears, or people don't feel it's that important, or we'll take care of it later. All the major manufacturers told us they offer security or encryption packages on their products. McLaughlin showed us this one from Sharp that automatically erases an image from the hard drive. How much does that component, that option, cost on a machine like this? $500. But evidence keeps piling up in warehouses that many businesses are unwilling to pay for such protection, and that the average American is completely unaware of the dangers posed by digital copiers. The day we visited that New Jersey warehouse, two shipping containers packed with used copiers were headed overseas, loaded with secrets, on their way to unknown buyers in Argentina and Singapore. Armin Katayan, CBS News, New York. So what's your reaction to that? I'll tell you what my reaction was. Wow. Wow. I mean, the amount of damage that could be done with a little bit of data pulled out of some of these, uh, these, these uh, devices is just unbelievable to me. I mean, I'm thinking just on decommissioning alone, hard, hard drives are dirt cheap. A simple security precaution, if you don't want to pay for the software, you don't want to pay for the feature or whatever, would be when you sell your copier, yank the hard drive out, smash it, drill a hole in it, and destroy it, replace the hard drive for a few bucks, you know, at the end of life cycle, or sell the sell off the asset without the hard drive. It should be illegal for these companies to do this. And I think most of them, they're not evil companies. They don't know what they're doing. I didn't know about it. I didn't get this. I never understood this. So there's another risk. So... You're probably in a position within many companies, especially smaller companies, to protect things like this from getting out and to find out. Again, if you're copiers, they said it made after 2002, it probably has a hard drive in it, and it's probably holding this data. And even when you think it's gone, it could probably be recovered. Uh, so that's something you better check into. And be careful about who you let photocopy what going into the future, because part of your survival is making sure that you can financially deal with situations. And if you have your entire financial life destroyed by somebody that gets your information, um, man, it could be really bad. I guess it's another reason to consider services like LifeLock uh, that would not only help protect that from happening, but if it did, go to bat for you to try to clean up the mess. Um, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up today. And I want to try to leave. I said it's been hard to be on a positive note, but I always try to leave you on a positive note whenever I can. So here's the positive aspects of all this. Okay, your government sucks. And they're using your money to tax you, and they're taxing you for getting yourself suntanned. Uh, there's a new virulent uh, uh, fungus out there that could kill you. The United States congressman says there's no safe place to put your money into another currency. Last week we had a Democratic senator that didn't say the dollar might collapse. He said it will collapse unless they tax us more and, and punish us more and take away some of the things that we actually find useful in our country. Um, how is there anything positive in this? Because you're still you, and you still control your life, and you still have lots of time, and there's still lots of things that you can do to make sure that if 
Everything starts to fall apart around you. You can keep your head. You're the one that decides whether or not you buy one extra can of food this week or one extra uh, package of pasta and put that away into your storage. You're the one that decides whether or not you have a, a good evacuation plan and a bug out kit. You're the one that decides whether to worry about the hordes are going to steal your tomatoes or grow some of your own food, take control of your own health and your own future. You're the one that decides whether to put more money on the MasterCard or start investing in real assets. You have complete control over all of these things. There will still be things that go wrong and there will be times when you get hurt where there's nothing else you could have done to avoid it. But you can certainly minimize that. It's up to you what you do. And if you start living wise and smart today, and many of you are already on that path, if you stay on that path, if you don't question yourself, if you don't start thinking, am I crazy? Look at my neighbor with the new car or the new truck or whatever. If you just believe that it makes sense to follow the wisdom that your grandparents would be whispering in your ear if they were still around to do it, then you know what? You'll handle all of these things as best as you possibly can. Understand, survival is not a right. It's certainly not a guarantee. You could do everything right and get hit by a dump truck tomorrow, for God's sakes. But I'll tell you what. It's up to you what odds of survival you have and how happy and joyous that survival is. Like I said earlier, I'm not crawling into a hole in the ground, folks, and living in, in a, a self-imposed prison. If I'm going to survive, I'm going to do it with dignity, and I'm going to do it with some pride, and I'm going to do it with some joy left in my life, no matter how tough times may become. Because I'm preparing today for the worst to happen tomorrow, and I'm doing it in such a way where I'll be better off even if nothing goes wrong. And on that note, that is the way to be. This has been Jack Smirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.